Well, I guess we're on the air. I don't know. I don't hear nothing. <laughs> That's not the way to start, but because um, I was hearing music before uh, when things were, were going, uh, we were testing things. Um, but Rich says, don't know why it did that. Well, I don't either, but hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure things are going to go too well today. Anyways, yes, as you can tell, um, Rich Pierce is not here. He is uh, uh, re- remotely sort of controlling things, but obviously not very well. Uh, so I realize all uh, the legions of Rich Pierce cam fans are tuning out right now because there's, there's, well, the camera's still there. I had to turn it off. Um and if you turn stuff in, now the light turns on. He's got his own light and his own camera and stuff. It's, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, I'm not sure what the end result of this is all going to be, but uh, notice what he just did to me now. It left me sitting here going, <laughs> I was sitting here, I look at the clock and I, then all of a sudden I look up the screen and there I am. <laughs> it's like, well, all right. <clears throat> the professionals are back at it here uh, at the, the good old uh, radio ranch. So, uh, anyway, we have a lot to get to today, uh, much to discuss, and um, I want to start off, uh, before we get to all the, I don't know if you're watching this on Twitter right now, but various other people are volunteering. How did this even start? Chocolate Knox, I guess, invited Owen Strand to come to Moscow and be on cross-politic to discuss Christian nationalism. And um, Chocolate Knox uh, said, if you would accept, E-X-C-E-P-T, Chocolate Knox, that's, uh, he, what he did is he accepted. He did what you asked him to do. He took exception. It's A-C-C-E-P-T um, is how you ask someone to accept something. Just one of those little grammar Nazi, spelling Nazi, word Nazi things. Um, that uh, sometimes gets in the way. Um, but uh, Owen Strand said no. And, uh, you know, I would have said, hey, if they're offering you a free trip, um, go for it. Uh, and enjoy your time there. You really would. You'd be treated well. Uh, I pretty much know which restaurant you'd be taken to. <laughs> uh, well, there's a couple uh, downtown. Uh, they're the primary places that people meet. Uh, you'd, you'd, be, you'd have a great time. And... Um, I would have probably whispered in your ear, invite Doug to taco time, just the two of you to talk. Um, that would have been good. But, um, anyway, that has now led to just this whole thing, uh, going on over the past 24 hours. And now Joe Rigney's thrown his name in there. And, uh, David Bonson has said, you know, okay, I'll, I'll do it too. And you've got... The very fact that you have all these different takes and flavors and opinions and stuff, I think is really important. Um, But it also illustrates, I think, just how fractured everything is. And my whole perspective from the start has been the only way that there can ever be anything even approaching what people are talking about somewhat as Christian nationalism is when that fracturing is either over a long period of time uh, defractured 
by meaningful conversation um, or by just the work of the Spirit of God. And that till then, um, a lot of what we're arguing about just doesn't really matter. Um, or at least if we're going to have discussions, they need to be exceptionally calm and very much focused on a future um not, you know not the idea of quote unquote muscular christianity uh taking over next week you know um real long range stuff but anyway that's what i've been saying from the start and so i've got a bunch of stuff here to to look at there but before we get into all of that uh before i get into all that um uh, I wanted to uh, respond to something that's a little bit more sort of the bailiwick of this particular program, and and I think that's probably a good thing. And, and that is, I tweeted this morning, uh, oh no, the sky is falling. <laughs> and I was responding to uh, Jeffrey T. Riddle, uh, who I've debated on this subject, and there's still good reason to do many more debates in the future, to be honest with you, um, if they want to keep making the claims they're making. Uh, he quoted, he tweet-quoted, re-quoted, whatever terminology you're using, X-quoted, whatever. Oh, excuse me. Um, Drew Moust, and it says, in his Nita lecture at BT Conference 2023, Edgar Ebojo is forewarning Bible translation practitioners of 200-plus changes to Matthew, Mark, Acts, and Revelation coming in the next edition of the Greek New Testament in 2024 to 2025. Now, let's get some information out there that we've gotten out before, but it seems, especially on this particular topic, People can get really uh, forgetful or get confused about stuff. This is one of many volumes of the Editio Critica Mayor. Uh, this is the multi, multi, multi volume uh, work that is underway, has been underway for a long time, coming out of Munster. Deutsche uh, Bibelgesellschaft publisher here. And this is a project that is intended to provide the largest amount of information ever presented um, to the world as far as collations of manuscripts and identification of manuscripts and and again, let's let's remind ourselves of some simple facts. When the Textus Receptus, this is, by the way, that is one of, is it three or four volumes? I was going to look. This is the major volume uh, for Mark. That's just Mark. And one of multiple volumes for Mark. Okay? So, compare that with the inspired standard, according to Dr. Riddle and many others, the Texas Receptus. Okay? 
1633, let's, uh, there's, there's variances and differences. This is really Scribner, so it's actually a 19th century work, but um, the Texas Receptus, published by the Trinitarian Bible Society, this is the ultimate standard. Um, every argument that they will make is based on this. So whatever this says is the final word. doesn't matter what the manuscripts say. It doesn't matter what internal evidence says. It, nothing matters. This is it. This, this determines everything else. This, they are just as committed to this as the final authority as Peter Ruckman was to the King James. King James, um, the King James corrects the Greek and the Hebrew. TR corrects any manuscripts. It, it's, it's the final word. Uh, no, matter, no matter what they do, that's, that's what it ends up as. Okay? So, this comes from a dozen, maybe at, at most, if you want to throw in everything that uh, anybody did with Beza and stuff like that, you know, two dozen manuscripts. And it has no critical apparatus. Why, why should it? If it's final authority, uh, why should it have critical apparatus? Why would you need that? Um, so, that's TR. This is the ECM. Mark is done. Acts is done. The general epistles is done. Evidently, what this is saying is that Matthew and Revelation are going to be done soon. Now, what I don't understand about this, I traveled to Munster in January of 2019. And I spoke with one of the leading lights. He was retiring. He's not involved with it now directly, I guess. But one of the leading people there um, at the Institute in Munster. And I was told at that time that uh, Mark was done, and that did come out. And that John was being done outside of their purview directly in Birmingham. And that they were on track to be fully published by 2030. And obviously COVID then hit the next year and evidently just threw everything uh, up in the air as far as when stuff is going to be published. I don't know what's taking John so long. I, I think the publication of John will probably push the ECM and the key textual methodology that's being applied to the ECM, which, of course, you long-term listeners know, is called CBGM, Coherence-Based Genealogical Methodology. And that's going to push that out into a little bit more of uh, public, public knowledge. I thought Mark might do that, but it really didn't because it didn't really impact much of anything. There was really... Uh, about the only text that was of major interest uh, was Mark 1.1, 1, 1, and ECM has the longer reading, uh, the beginning of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, Son of God, that phrase, the Son of God. So that was interesting. That was definitely one that I was interested in seeing what the result of the application of CBGM, uh, the CBGM databases and analysis would be. Uh, but it wasn't big enough to really cause anything. There are some textual variants in John that might finally push it out there. And certainly when the Pauline epistles 
you know, Romans 5.1 would be one that immediately pops to mind, for example. But in John, you know, you've got John 1.18, pretty important text. Um, And, but the, the reality is the CBGM analysis that's already been done has pretty much confirmed where the current Greek New Testament, that's the Allen 28th edition, uh, has been all along. Where there are changes, and they say 200 plus changes. Uh, so Dr. Riddle types, 200 plus changes coming to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, which is different than what the quoted text says. But anyway, in the next critical edition of the Greek New Testament, and five exclamation points. Let's see, two, four, yep, five exclamation points. That's, that, when you get to five exclamation points, especially when you're a Calvinist, um, that is the perfection of exclamation points. And uh, so uh, everyone's like, oh, ah, changes, oh. And, and it's like, I've heard this for so many years. It's what the King James only guys do. It's, it, there, there is so little difference between TR onlyism and King James onlyism that it's not even funny, especially in the methodology. And it's like, changes, oh, we're changing the Bible. Once you use, once you use language like that, you're no longer dealing with scholarship. You're dealing with rhetoric. You really are. Um, in the first volume of, of each one of these, right toward the front is a chart that is provided to you uh, that, that gives you all of the differences uh, between the ECM and the Nessialand now 28th edition. So earlier it would have been 27th edition. And uh, there they are. There's one page. There's that, that's for Mark. And then the next couple pages are where you have now what is called a split guiding line. There's only one page, one and a half pages. Well, it'd be two and a half pages when you include both sides. Where there's now a split guideline, which what that means is what they've done in the ECM. And all this is available online. You don't, these are very, very expensive. We have to get them for obvious reasons, but uh, you don't. Uh, looks good on the shelf. <laughs> uh, very hard to carry around. It's all in line. If you go look at uh, the ECM uh, online, you will see that the way they've done things is is when they have a reading that is it's split. Um, there is uh, just as much evidence for one way of reading it as the other way of reading it. Then they'll give you both. They will split the line. And they'll give you both readings, one above the other, rather than just having to make a decision relegating everything else um, to the apparatus at the bottom of the page. Now, that's how it's been done for a long, long time. But those of you who, for example, have taken Greek and you took, uh, you used, uh, for example, I guess I'll need to just put that there for the moment. You used the UBS text. Um you, you're used to the, the notes down at the bottom of the page. Not many notes. Uh, this is for translators, and so they only put the major variants in here. In comparison, the Nessial on 28th edition has many more notes, but less information uh, cited for each one. But to do it this way, you know, what they're trying to do is preserve the, the text as just single line and then if you want to know what's down, if you want to know what the variants are, they're noted down at the bottom of the page. 
Um, that is cleaner, uh, you know, if you're trying to like read from this or translate from this or something like that. Definitely cleaner than having a split line type situation. But by doing the split line thing, they're basically saying it's a 50-50. In the UBS, they would have uh, an, a, a rating, you know, B, C, D, uh, as to how strong the committee felt one particular reading was over another. But again, all the information was provided to you. If you want the information, it's right there in front of you. And as Erasmus himself, the originator of the TR, um, who would have laughed hysterically at TR onlyism, I can assure you. Um, he, in fact, he wouldn't have laughed. Well, I think after laughing hysterically, he then would have gotten very angry and probably rather acerbic, uh, to be honest with you, uh, as to what has been done with, with his work and the, the people who have attempted to invest it with some kind of inspiration or something. Anyway, uh, so the ECM is going to have a different look to it, uh, but they're also trying to avoid being like the final arbiters. They're trying to give as much information as possible. And that's what a lot of people don't like. It's weird. They they want someone to be the final arbiter. They they just want a TR. They want something without textual footnotes. And the other major religious world group in the world that wants the exact same thing are the more uh, the Muslims. They don't want a critical edition of the Quran, even though one needs to be presented and one needs to be and can be uh, published if the manuscripts could be gathered and you could travel around the Middle East without getting killed for doing such a thing. Um, but that's, that's how the Muslims want it. Just listen to my debate with Adnan Rashid on that subject from London a number of years ago. Um, that's exactly what the Muslims want. They want a final edition with no textual notes, just like the TR only folks with the TR. That's it's the exact same mindset. There is no difference between it at all. Um, so they look at something like this as what a massive waste of paper. And it is a lot of paper. Uh, or what a massive waste of uh, computing space to put it all on online so anybody can have access to that huge amount of information. But obviously, it's a great thing. It's a great blessing. It's um, those of us who do serious apologetics with world religions and in defense of the New Testament know how vitally important this is and how what a blessing it is. Oh my goodness. You have to recognize that when Erasmus is doing what he's doing, he didn't know which manuscripts were which. There was no, uh, there was no cataloging system. There was no designation system that was consistent. Um, I've told you the f rather funny story that uh, in the uh, 1550 Stephanus down there that we've shown you many times before, there is a manuscript that's cited. There's a very small critical text in the, in the Stephanus. There's a manuscript that's cited as the beta text, B in our language. And when Beza was working on his 1598 Greek New Testament, he had Stephanos. He was not aware of what that B text was. He had been given what we now know today as the living Bible of the ancient church, Codex Beze Cantabrigiensis, Codex D, we call it. And he knew it was very strange, had a lot of strange readings in it. But when he'd look at Stephanos, lo and behold, here was this manuscript B, Beta, um, that had same readings. And so that 
would influence how he would look at things. Well, it was actually the same manuscript. He just didn't know it. He didn't know Stephanos had access to it, and then it had been given to him. He didn't know where it had come from. Um, and that influenced things. And that's how things were up until the last century when someone finally said, you know, we should assign a particular designation to each manuscript. We need to know where it is, what it contains. Um, and we need to start collating these things. And so initially, microfilm was used. But man, that's next to impossible to read in so many manuscripts. And now CSNTM has done such great uh, work um, in digitizing so many of these manuscripts because a lot of them are fading. Uh, you can you can demonstrate that there are pictures of of certain papyri manuscripts and stuff that um, you know seventy years ago looked a whole lot clearer than they do today because they're fading. They're they're in use again, and uh, the ink is fading. They're they're old. <laughs> it happens with old stuff. Anyway, uh, so. We are in a situation today where we know so much more about which manuscripts are which and the collations of those manuscripts. There, there, were, there were great Protestant uh, theologians who made statements about certain texts of Scripture that are just simply completely wrong. Not because they didn't do their homework, but they could not have known otherwise. That we now know the truth about how many manuscripts read one way or the other way or things like that. They just simply did not have that information at that time. So it is a good thing. It is a proper thing. It is uh, a blessing to have this information available to us. Um, it increases our confidence in possessing the original text. Simply, simply grabbing hold of a text and going, this is it, and I will answer every objection to this by simply saying, this is it, is no different than the Mormon who grabs the Book of Mormon says the same thing. It's, it's, a, it's a tight little teeny tiny circle that says, this is it, this is it, I, don't ask me anything. And we've demonstrated, this is what TR onlyism is, go listen to the debates with Jeffrey Riddle, listen to the arguments he uses for the long reigning of Mark, which has a great deal of ancient testimony behind it, and then listen to his arguments for Ephesians 3.9, which has no ancient testimony behind it. At all. They should, if you're going to be consistent, you should apply the same standards to both texts. He cannot do so because this is his final authority. It's what this reads. That's it. That's it. That's indefensible in debate. That's indefensible in apologetics. Um, that's just a fact. Having this kind of information, now we can, for example, instead of the way it was when I was younger... Uh, we would have to quote a particular Greek scholar who would say, well, it seems we have about a 98.5% uh, uh, agreement amongst the manuscripts and the vast majority, and it's all based on just guesses. Um, we don't have to guess anymore. You've got the databases right there. Once the CBGM database comes up, for Mark, you can specifically identify exactly the the amount of coherence between manuscripts uh, with exactitude. That's great to have. It's irrelevant if you're a TR-only person. Everything past 1633 is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what manuscripts appear. It doesn't matter the papyri. None of that stuff has any meaning whatsoever. It cannot change the reading of the TR. It's impossible. If it supports the TR, it's irrelevant. If it doesn't support the R, TR, it's irrelevant. <laughs> so, when you hear the 
you know, the hair on fire and 200 plus changes. I'm more interested in evidently Drew Moust has some inside information as to what's going on with CBGM and ECM. And that means Nessial in 29th is coming out. Did you hear that, Jeffrey Rice? <laughs> yeah, I've got a I've got a project for Jeffrey Rice. Uh, we all know what he did with my NA28 large print, and how that was uh, helped launch things for post Tenebrous Lux Bible rebinding. Uh, so when Nessial in 29 comes out, Jeffrey, let's see if you can beat what you did. With uh, with the 28th edition, that would be that would be pretty cool. Let's see how your skills have increased over the past number of years, uh, and we'll see what uh, what you can come up with for that. But according to Drew, anyways, the uh, it's Matthew and Revelation are going to be coming out next, and soon enough for the Nessial in 29th to reflect that. Now, what's fascinating about that is I can't, there's not that much in Matthew that I think is going to do anything, but you got to understand something. So Mark and Acts are already out. But Revelation? Wow. I mean, we've, we've had an exhaust, pretty much an exhaustive collation of the manuscripts of Revelation because there just aren't that many of them. Of all the books in the New Testament, Revelation has the fewest surviving manuscripts to this day. And so... That had already been done um, a long time ago. Obviously, some things have been found since then, so there could be some addition as far as the information goes. But Revelation is the most textual variant-filled book in the New Testament. There's no question about it. There is no one Byzantine text of Revelation. Uh, if you've ever tried studying textual variants in Revelation, um, the what would be called the majority or Byzantine text splits all over the place. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to see if the CBGM analysis of they should have. I would imagine that the CBGM uh, version of Revelation should include every Greek manuscript known of the Book of Revelation. It should it should be completely exhaustive. Now, this does not include other languages. So, I would assume the next step after ECM is finished would be to expand the C... Because you can you can do CBGM analysis on the basis of other languages. So, you know, exactly what languages will be used? Would it be Latin? Would it be Coptic? Boharic? Sahidic? Uh, what, you know, what... What early translations would be brought into uh, that particular context? I don't know. I don't know. But there are a lot of variants in Revelation. It's going to be very interesting. And one thing that is absolutely inevitable is that a CBGM analysis of Revelation will demonstrate all of the places where Erasmus just face-planted. And hence, the, the CBGM version of Revelation will be the most 
unlike the TR. Because it will expose the many, 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 many places that Erasmus messed up. And we've explained this before. He didn't have a Greek manuscript to work with. He had to extract the Greek text from a Latin commentary. That would cause all sorts of problems in and of itself. He only had one manuscript. You don't want to just have one manuscript. And parts of that manuscript are missing. And there were transcription errors made in it. And he didn't care because he did not have much respect for the book of Revelation at all. It just didn't really matter to him. And then the, the immediate question that popped into my mind years and years and years ago was, okay, that explains the first edition, but he had five. He had years to fix it. Why didn't he ever fix the book of Revelation? Why do we have these, why do you have those last six verses in Revelation chapter 22? They're still in the TR, where he back translated from Latin into Greek. Why? And then I found out why. He, for the second edition, he told the printer, go get the Align Brothers uh, printing of the Greek New Testament, which had come out since his, and use their book of Revelation. <laughs> Not knowing they had used his. <laughs> they had used Erasmus's Revelation. They had just as much tr- trouble getting manuscripts as anybody else did. So it just never got fixed. And it became, here's a good example from the textual world where something becomes a tradition uh, inevitably and mistakenly. And then you get folks, like the TR only guys, um, who will enshrine that tradition with religious significance and authority, and hence it can't be touched. Um, And so... There you go. Um, every week we're getting this. There's a lot of folks that haven't caught on. We are not on YouTube live any longer. Uh, Denver, brother, we've been on. We've been on. Uh, we've been on Twitter as the live feed for a long time now. It's been how long has it been? Uh, it's been at least three months, four months. I forget. Maybe longer. Um, so yeah. Um, Rich is responding right now. The, ever sat there since early July? Okay. Ever just sat there staring at the... I wonder... <laughs> this is a modern a modern problem. We all sit there looking at those little dots. Because someone's typing. Oh, what are they going to say? These are not moments that Star- Charles Spurgeon ever ever had to waste. <laughs> or anybody else. Prior to just a few years ago, actually. Um, what on the... what? On, followed by uh, Rich demonstrating either that his cat just attacked his keyboard, because that looks, how my, that looks like how my cat types, uh, or Rich, being a former charismatic, has gone back to his old ways. <laughs> because I, I could not possibly translate anything that just... Uh, came came there. But I'm going to guess, we both have kittens right now. His is much, much, much bigger than mine. Much older than mine. mine uh, Dini only turned four months yesterday. So um, he, he's not nearly as big as Rich's. But that looks like a uh, cowboy attack. Uh, yes! Yeah, cowboy attacked the keyboard and uh, sent a message to me in uh, cat, which I honestly... Would like to be able to speak, but have not learned that as yet. Anyway, so 
Uh, if you see, you know, people with their hair on fire going, they're changing the New Testament again. Uh, I could go through, again, they're, they're, they're right here. I, I could go through and, and give you the changes. They're, they're listed for any, anybody who wants to know. They're online, too. They're online, too. Um, and so we, we know that the one meaningful variant uh, that was addressed is in Mark 1.1. And uh, the Son of God, uh, Son of God had been in brackets in the NA28, and now it's not in brackets anymore. That's, that's it. Uh, so in verse 4, there's an article. There's, there's, there was an article in brackets in the NA28, and it's, uh, it's no longer anywhere in the ECM. Um, in chapter 2, verse 12, there's uh, two synonyms for before. Yeah. Um, in uh, chapter 4, verse 15, uh, amongst them or unto them, uh, in verse 16, uh, likewise. Okay. Uh, in verse 31, how to spell, it's either uh, kakon or kako. Uh, in 623, the NA28 had had many in brackets. It, it's now gone. There's no uh, many there. Uh, so yeah, these are huge, huge, I mean, just deep theological significance each one of these vast majority of you you if you can't read greek you wouldn't even know wouldn't even notice it wouldn't even notice it um like in 1132 uh the people versus the crowd there's another article uh there there's a post positive day in 1614 I'm not too worried about 169 following up to that um if you hear people trying to make it sound like, you know, we can just do what we want with the text of Scripture, they're misleading you badly, badly. So let's, let's not go there. All right, shifting gears. Shifting gears. Uh, boy, how am I going to get to all this? Let's start with Douglas Wilson's 11-tweet uh, presentation of Christian nationalism, Okay. I think it's important, you know, the Q&A panel for Wednesday of G3 will eventually be on YouTube. Uh, it's on the G3 app right now, I think. I could be wrong. I don't know, because that was the pre-conference, so I'm not really sure who's in charge of all that. But anyway, we did a uh, pre-conference, GBTS did prior to G3. And we had a panel at the end, which I was a little nervous about because I knew it was sort of going to be me versus everybody else. And it was it, it went well. Someone made a funny meme where they basically said that I had um, twice the amount of time all the rest of the people gathered together. When they made it, I thought they had actually timed it out. I found out later that they hadn't. It was just a joke uh when it when it is available i may actually time it out myself or ask somebody else to do it just to see um 
how much more I talked than anyone else did. But anyway, it was done respectfully and in, in such a way as to try to um, edify the audience. Uh, there, there are clearly different perspectives being expressed there. Um, but without flaming arrows and uh, all the rest of that, no, no anathemas or anything like that going on. And so at the beginning of the uh, conversation, Owen Strand identified me as a Christian nationalist. I said, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, I, I don't use that terminology myself, so I, I'm not, I'm not going to defend everything as out there under the name of Christian nationalist. At the same time, obviously, there are all sorts of things that we're all agreeing on that I don't think we would have agreed on in 2018. So the post-millennialist in me is going, hey, go in the right direction anyways. Um, I don't think we would have agreed on a lot of this stuff. I think there is a significantly greater recognition of the reality of the myth of neutrality, that we've all lived with the myth of neutrality in the past. Uh, there's a significantly, greatly increased recognition that a secular view of man cannot ground any kind of meaningfully consistent law. Uh, and we'd say, because we live in God's world, and if you don't live according to God's ways in God's world, you're going to have a mess on your hands. Um, and so a lot of the, you know, I, I believe firmly there will be no, there can be no human flourishing within secularism. Um, that, and I've said from the beginning, if all you mean by Christian nationalism is blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, and sin is a rebuke or a reproach upon any people, and you have to be able to know what sin is, uh, then that would make me a Christian nationalist. But obviously, uh, people are going way, 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 way beyond that. And up to this point, I have basically directed people to the sweater vest dialogues that I did with Doug Wilson, both on the Stephen Wolf book, and my concerns there, which I have far more concerns now than I did then, now that I've seen some of the fleshing out, especially from Stephen Wolf's perspective, who went after me last week, on the uh, masculinity stuff. Um, and then the second one we did on Doug's book, uh, Mere Christendom. And in both of those programs, I express concerns about sacralism. Now, of course, Stephen Wolf just mocks that, but that just means he's off talking to himself in the corner. Uh, sacralism is a is a reality for all Baptists. <laughs> we, uh, we have far too long a martyrology in history to ignore the danger of sacralism. And what I've pointed out is that a creating a structure that produces nominalism. Nominal Christianity. Producing a structure where Christianity becomes a framework into which you put everybody, whether they're regenerate or not, 
um, is what Doug would call Christendom 1.1, 1.0. And he's talking about Christendom 2.0. Well, the only way you can have Christendom 2.0, and I thought Doug and I pretty much agreed on this, and I think if we talked about it, he would agree about this. What I've said in both of those sweater vest dialogues is the only way it's going to happen is after and as the result of, and this may be where we might differ, but my thinking is after and as the result of this major work of the Spirit of God that many of us see promised in Scripture, where the nations seek after Yahweh's Torah, His law. The coastlands, which was meant outside of Israel, come seeking the truth of God, that the knowledge of God fills the, the 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 world as the as the oceans cover the uh, cover the cover the seas and this kind of stuff. That's that there's stuff that has to happen first, and it's not happening right now, not in any global sense. And so the idea of you know well we're all just going to take over next week is really rather silly, and. Having um, that kind of collective unity that comes from true regeneration is what would be necessary to avoid the evils and the Christ denigration that was a part of Christendom 1.0. And so people will say, well, but wouldn't it be better to have nominal Christian law rather than drag queen story hour. Well, there's no question that secularism is utterly self-defeating and utterly destructive. Uh, It is anti-Christian to its core. It is a denial of everything that Jesus said was good and right and honest and true and just. Everything he came to do. Everything he was based upon. Secularism is the polar opposite of that. It's the denial of the supernatural nature of the world around us. So it's easy to say, well, anything's going to be better than that. But the problem with saying anything's better than that is what about when you literally have Christian people inventing a system that calls itself Christian but no longer has the gospel as its motivating and creative factor? Because once you, for example, create the office of Christian prince, that's a word that's been coming up, phrase that's been coming up. Um, from my perspective, if you call someone a Christian prince, the first word is Christian, who happens to be a prince. What you have in sacralism is an office of prince, of Christian prince, and it doesn't matter what your spiritual state is, you can be in that office if you have the proper if you're elected to it, if you're, you inherit it, you know, whatever. And that led to everything that we saw. That, that led to the scandal of the Reformation. That, does anyone remember Luther, Rome, 1510? Anyone do their church history anymore? 1510, Luther walks to Rome, literally. Can you imagine that walk? <laughs> he was a monk. That's what he had to do. Walks to Rome. Takes a long time. Goes on pilgrimage. And while he's there, he sees the Pope riding through the streets of Rome 
in armor on a horse. He just walked to Rome. And there's the Pope on a horse. He could have gotten Rome a lot faster on a horse, I can assure you. In armor. The head of, a, of the papal armies. And he sees the nominalism, the surface level nature of the spirituality of the vast majority of people in Rome. And he's scandalized by it, as well he should be. It was an affront to the gospel of Christ. So I'm not real big in the, well, it's better to have that than know what we got now. No, I don't think we need either one. Uh, I, I think both should be rejected. It's not a, it's a, it's a false binary to say, well, these are your own, only your, these are the only choices you got. Um, from my perspective, from a, and again, you're, you're getting all these different viewpoints out there, but the perspective that I expressed in those dialogues, um, which I thought we had agreement on, uh, is that this can only work after a major work of the Spirit of God. Now, most amillennialists and premillennialists of various stripes will say, oh yes, Christ will do all these things. Christ will banish all his enemies and Christ will reign and so on and so forth. But he'll only do it after everything has fallen apart and then he comes back and in this massive display of power, just wipes everybody out. You know, Armageddon, blood up to the bridles, the horses. I'm not sure what horses are doing there, but blood up to the bridles, the horses. And uh, it's just sort of Boom, and it's done. Up till then, we lose down here. That's one view. Um, or all of those promises in Scripture are fulfilled only spiritually. There's, there's no corresponding reality in the sense of the kingdom of Christ expanding across the world. And hey, if that's the way it is, fine and dandy. I was a Christian when I was an amillennialist. I was a Christian when I was a premillennialist. Uh, I don't turn that into a dogmatic standard. We are discovering that eschatology is important as to how you're going to look at the future and what your plans are going to be for the future and whether you're going to build for the future. Um, but it's, it's, it's not the dogma that defines the faith, though there are some people that are making it that way. Um, but that's the only form of quote-unquote Christian nationalism that I could ever embrace. And it's very much a future reality that has to be built for. You build now, just as the Puritans did hundreds of years ago, and they didn't see it come to, come to fruition. They weren't talking about taking over next year. They were looking long-term, down the road. Build for it. Work for it. Pray for it. Um, so there's going to have to be, you know, the Spirit of God is what gives patience. And there's going to have to be a lot of that. Which I don't see right now. At all. Amongst almost anybody. So, there's my position. Um... Doug Wilson, all human societies are moral agents. Okay. Moral agency requires an ethical standard by which to measure and evaluate the actions of that moral agent. 
All ethical standards are based on authority, those authorities being the gods of their respective ethical systems. The god of the system will either be the true and living god, or an idolatrous construct, or an idolatrous construct of some sort. So, this is where a lot of people get unhappy um, with the strength of that assertion. And that's because if you've lived most of your life with the idea that the Constitution was sort of a middle ground that didn't really have a god of the system, then you're not going to want this kind of binary. But the fact was, there was a god of that system. And the entire foundation, you know, how many times we quoted it, what John Adams said, what many of the other founders said, constitutions for religious and moral people. And that religious wasn't just New Age woo-woo-ism. That had a specific meaning for them, which included the revelation of God's truth in Jesus Christ, the revelation of his law, the goodness of the Mosaic Code, things like that. Um, so when a society undertakes an action as a moral agent and the question by what standard is posed is a question that must be answered. It cannot be dodged. And we're asking those questions now. I mean, this society can't answer the question, by what standard do you know what a woman is? By what standard do you know what a man is? By what standard do you know what a baby is? We can't answer the most basic questions of life any longer because we're embarrassed about the foundation we once stood on that we have now rejected and anathematized. There's no question about that. Secularism must be considered as one of the sneakiest offenders among all idolatrous constructs. If any idol tries to dodge the question, it is sure to be secularism. Well, see, I, I use much stronger terminology. I, to describe something as sneaky... You know, my kitten is sneaky. <laughs> he gets into stuff that, how'd he get there? I don't know. Uh, but he's cute. Secularism will never be cute. Secularism is anti-Christian and satanic at its core. Secularism is the pretense of neutrality in civic garb and is simply the idol of man's self-deification pretending to be invisible. Agreed, thousand percent. Christians are required to keep themselves from idols, which would mean keeping yourself from secularism. Christians must therefore desire that the moral choices of the society to which they belong be grounded in the will of the true God and not in the will of idols. Though there are many, 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 many Christians in the world today that live in societies that do anything but that. And God calls many portions of the church to endure that kind of idolatrous um, cultural context that does not lead to human flourishing. Uh, and we, should, we dare not complain when God puts us in that place. In order to reject Christian nationalism, a Christian must reject one of the above. Which one will it be? Otherwise, welcome to Christian nationalism. Well, at the same time, I am sure, and he has said, Doug has said that there are aspects of Stephen Wolf's formulation that he doesn't agree with. So, this is a very big tent Christian nationalism. And 
I'm not sure how useful that is. I mean, I've got the biggest tent Christian nationalism. Blessed is a nation whose God is Yahweh. Sin is a reproach to any people. Okay? Everybody agrees with that. That doesn't necessarily end up defining anything, does it? Um, someone named Prairie Grass responded to Doug and said, The founders disagreed with you. They saw the harms religious differences caused in Europe, wars and persecutions. They wanted different for this country. That's why they specifically said they wanted separation of church and state. Well, that's not what they said. Because Doug responded, they actually said no established church at the federal level, which I support. And separating church and state is a lot easier than separating morality and state. So, yeah, Prairie Grass's statement there isn't historically accurate at all. And wasn't really functional, and the whole idea of separation of church and state was keeping the state from interfering in the church, not the other way around. The, the, the idea was never that the state was to um, produce a, a Nadler, um, someone who says God has nothing to do with the deliberations of this House of Representatives or anything else. They all believed that God had everything to do with the deliberations of the House, and that um, the reality is that they would be judged by the standards that God had revealed. Uh, they they recognize that. Um, so immediately there was a whole lot of pushback and stuff like that, as you would expect. Um, but just some of my thoughts about what Doug said. Now, Owen Strand, uh, through the, um, the hand grenade that got all this started, and there's been lots of hand grenades thrown back, and... Um, I am, in responding to this, responding to my boss <laughs> at GBTS, but I, I can do that um, because we're doing it. Um, well, one of, the, one of the tweets that Owen uh, posted uh, said, provide there is biblical grounding, Christians can disagree in good faith about Christian nationalism, postmillennialism, and political theology. We can have unity and disagreement. But that does not stop us from thinking deeply, exchanging views, and standing for our position. Well, okay. I think um, that's what needs to be going on. But, and right now, quote-unquote social media, electronic conversation, is how we're talking to one another. There are a lot of limitations to that. But it also opens up vistas of input that we didn't have before, right? The printing press started it all. And um, look back, for example, uh, on the publications that flew from Luther's pen between 1517 and, say, 1521. Booklet after booklet after booklet. That was the ancient equivalent of social media. But obviously, only certain people had access to having a voice. You had to earn your access. One of the problems with social media is that people who have not proven anything in their lives, they've, they've not, they, they would never qualify for leadership in the church because the list of qualifications is based on how have you lived your life? What have you done? What have you accomplished? 
And social media just allows anybody with a keyboard to have equal access. And the result is this utter mishmash. And, and at times you, you read stuff from people and it's just so obvious. They, they wouldn't know how to think logically if their life depended on it. You wonder how they function in the world. There's a lot of that out there and that creates all this background noise. And it just makes it, a lot of people just throw up their hands and say, forget it. There's just, this is such a mess. And I, I, I understand that. So you have to take the good and the bad. And some people decide there's more bad than there is good. So they just walk away from it all. I get it. But from my perspective, it is the iron sharpen, sharpening iron. It's the long-term dialogue and discussion where people who have proven themselves over time. I've seen a lot of, uh, what was it I saw recently? Um, you know, some of the, these younger guys going, well, you know, you still have to respect your elders, even though they're boomers, you know, this sort of a condescending, you know, they messed up the world for us, but, uh, you still have to show them some type of respect. It was somewhere in Twitter. And I'm <laughs> most, not all, but most of the most immature stuff I've seen have been coming from people who've never pastored a church for more than a year or two, um, don't have any uh, long-term ministry to draw from, to be able to create wisdom from. And any movement where that is the, the prime mover there is going to be in trouble. And probably not going to be long for this world. Um, the kind of discussion that needs to be being, being had is not only intergenerational, but it may last for many generations. At least that's my perspective. I understand there's forms of Christian nationalism that doesn't care. You know, there's, you know, Stephen Wolf is not a post-millennialist, not a theonomist. So you have this other perspective out there, which I have no interest in holding to, promoting, defending in any way, shape, or form. I reject it. At least sacralism. Don't want it. Warn against it. Uh, and that that's what my voice will be saying in those in those contexts. So Owen um, posted these tweets. He said, there is no Christian prince in Scripture. There is no New Testament mandate to theonomize the nations. I'm not sure what that means. I can guess. There is no replacement of suffering Christianity with martial Christianity. <coughs> Excuse me. The nations will not become Christian in this age. There is no call to Christians today to undo the curse. Now, that was the hand grenade. And I've seen it described in numerous different ways. Um, none of them flattering, to be honest with you. Then there was a follow-up that said, Bad news, there is no Christian prince coming to save you, for the Bible gives you no such hope. This is as imaginary as the tooth fairy. Amazing news, Jesus the warrior savior is coming back at the appointed hour, and he will rout Satan, crush all his enemies, and reign in glory. Well, again, nobody is arguing either point, from my perspective. Um, even the sacralist-producing Christian nationalist, um, the, only, the only people you've got, e even those people are not trying to say that the Christian prince is in the place of Jesus. Um, 
I have seen those people out there, and they are scary. Very scary. But they're already the picture of nominalism. But the scary people out there, they're looking for some kind of a um, dictator-like um, Christian leader. And, yeah, that's... that. Hopefully everybody can get together and go, wow, that's really stupid. Can we call those folks repentance? Um, and everyone agrees with the amazing news part. Okay, Jesus, the warrior savior, is coming back. They pointed out, we've got Revelation 19.20. You know, we've got uh, skillet singing white horse uh, that John wrote for me and Joe Boot. Um, and it's all about the conquering savior. Great. The differences are how that's going to happen is that is up to that point. It's just a uh, down into degradation uh, is the because in a, in a way you, you everybody has their problem problem verses okay <clears throat> everybody has stuff that doesn't seem to fit real well so the picture of the kingdom of God spreading like leaven. Um, have you ever seen Levin uh, working in bread? I mean, all the ladies now, you know, my wife, my daughter, are uh, sourdough queens, okay? My wife, she likes to make some with some seasoning in it. Some she puts this butter stuff. I think she uses that stuff from back in the 80s. I can't believe it was that butter. Um, no, no, the butter sprinkle stuff, whatever that stuff was. Um, butter bits, I don't, I can't remember. Anyways, uh, she puts some of that stuff in there and then straight up sourdough. That's the stuff that I want to eat. And, you know, it. she experimented, experimented, experimented. She's got a whole notebook of all the different stuff she's done. And uh, now it's just, she just whips them out and it's a lot less work for her. She's simplified it and it's great. And she provides it to all sorts of folks, her mom and family members, stuff like that. Um, but anyone who does baking knows that you don't you don't put leaven in and then it sits there for 2,000 years and all of a sudden explodes all over the place. That doesn't seem to be the, the analogy Jesus is using in the kingdom. Uh, the, the, that growth uh, seems to be a, a continuous thing. Whereas a lot of eschatologies have it down to nothing, then boom, because of the second coming. Um, so it, it, everybody has issues with certain pictures and to trying to figure out exactly what that was meant to refer to. Is it a specific time frame? You know, um, you got all the stuff with what to do with Matthew chapter 24, which honestly, I think has been fairly clearly explained, but there's still a lot of folks that do some wild and crazy stuff with Matthew chapter 24. Uh, but no one's disagreeing with the, the idea that Christ will rout Satan, crush all his enemies, reign in glory. The issue is, is that reigning in glory relevant to today? When, when 1 Corinthians 15 says that he is reigning now, and the last enemy to put under his feet is death, um, how does that fit with the sudden eschatological, everything is falling apart, 
we're at the lowest point, and then boom, Christ returns scenario, which I had always held to as well until I was forced to deal with the continuing reign of Christ now. Especially if Daniel 7 is the continuation of what we have in Acts 1 with the ascension. If Daniel 7 is the, is the installation of the king before the Ancient of Days, after the accomplishment of redemption, um, man, again, that's what made me go, okay, let's start up here with this big stuff and go downward rather than down here and try to go upward. Uh, that was what was important for me. So um, no one's really arguing, I think, either side, either side here, um, at least not amongst Orthodox. Um, the idea of a, some type of eschatological Christian prince or something along those lines. I have not, not run into, I have run into the weirdos that want the, <clears throat> you know, Mussolini type or Tito type or whatever, somebody to sort of take over and stuff. I'm like, okay, bye. Um, but let me, let me just run through briefly, uh, Franco. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the, the points in the previous tweet, there is no Christian prince in scripture. If, if we, what we mean by that is what we had under <clears throat> sacralism 1.0, Christendom 1.0, where you had an office of Christian prince. I mean, if you were to be a prince in a state, you would have a Christian coronation and your spiritual state was irrelevant because your spiritual state could be assumed under the sacramental system of Rome. <laughs> Obviously. I reject all of that. Uh, the, uh, the theology that would have to underlie it is uh, to be rejected, I think, by any Protestant Reformed person. However, we have clear evidence, for example, that people in Caesar's household were being converted to Christ. And we have names in the New Testament, and some of them seemed to be magistrates. Um, so if we don't use the term prince, but a Christian magistrate, if a person is truly converted who is a magistrate, should that not impact how they rule? And you see, I think there might be some people would say no. That they have to rule in light of whatever idolatrous or pagan standards have already been set up for that office. Um, but, but I would say every judge of the earth will be judged based upon what God has revealed is just and right and true. So there would of necessity be in the post-millennial understanding a period where once the majority of people in a culture are Christians, you're going to have Christian princes in the sense of magistrates who are truly converted and will rule and reign and legislate as truly converted people in the light of God's law, which is a blessing to a people. Big time. What we saw in sacralism, once Theodosius declares the Roman Empire to be a Christian empire, since that was not produced by a um, massive outpouring of gospel preaching, 
But unfortunately, by that time, a degrading sacramentalism, you now ended up producing the sacral positions of Christian prince, which then led to all of the horrific things that were done in the name of Christ that had no connection to biblical mandates, biblical law, were violations of biblical law, right, left, and center. Um, so there's the danger of an office of Christian prince from a sacralistic perspective. Um, there is no New Testament mandate to theonomize the nations. I would assume that what is being referred to there is to... Um, well, I, I would imagine it has something to do with forcing Christian law on people that don't want Christian law. Um, I think that, again, if you believe that Isaiah 42 um, and passages similar to that about you know the knowledge of the Lord, um, the nations seeking after the Torah of Yahweh, uh, that those have a fulfillment outside of merely a spiritual fulfillment, then when you, again, have a massive work of the Spirit of God, and magistrates and entire nations, not as nations, but large proportion of individuals within a nation are converted to Christ, what are they going to look to for their law? Marx, Hegel, anybody else? John Locke, something? No. What does Jeremiah 31 say? What's, what's the nature of the new covenant? I will write my law upon their hearts. Well, what law is that? So, when you ask the question, by what standard, the only answer we can give is the standard that has been given to us. And it is a measure, and I'm not saying this of Owen, I'm saying this of evangelicalism as a whole, it is a comment on where we are in the world today that not only is there such ignorance of God's law, but there's really a distrust of it. I'm so thankful that years ago, I happened to look it up today, I was directing someone to it, I did those 38 sermons on the Holiness Code, and we didn't just stick with the whole the specific Holiness Code in Leviticus. We went into Deuteronomy and some other places and really tried to find every hard, hard text uh, to, to deal with it. But uh, I'm so glad that, that I did that because it disabused me of some of my own history and the, the common thinking that just you, you pick up in evangelical churches. Have you ever read that stuff in the law about, you know, you know fabrics and, you know, stoning people? And, ooh, you know, there's, there's, there's just, it's like there's no interest in it whatsoever. As if that really wasn't the Bible of the early church. And that wasn't what Jesus was talking about when he said, if anyone teaches you to break the least of these commandments, they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. Um, so... I would agree there is no New Testament mandate in the sense of a command, but it is the natural outworking of the promises of the nations seeking 
you know, if, if the nations are going to seek the Torah of Yahweh, what else would that be? If you direct them to what's g- the goodness of God's law as a revelation of his holy nature, what, what else would that even look like? Uh, there is no replacement of suffering Christianity with martial Christianity. Well, um, I'm not sure that the, you know, what is martial Christianity? Well, I'm, I'm seeing some of that. I'm seeing this, this muscular Christianity, this um, uh, militaristic uh, perspective. And that's, again, crusades, hello, nothing new there. Um uh, Sacralism 1.0 pulled that one off big time long, long time ago, and you you could argue that it sort of had its first manifestation with with Constantine. I'm not sure if there really was enough foundation there yet, but I mean it's probably certainly a step in that direction. Um, Suffering Christianity is central to the formation of, you know, we're sufferers, Christ suffered, um, recognition of pilgrim status, all the rest of that kind of stuff. The The question is, is not really between suffering Christianity and martial Christianity, but what the nature of the suffering is. So in other words, even if, let's say if 75% of a nation became truly converted, and again, Calvinists, cannot just simply dismiss that as a possibility. Well, God's never done that before. Wasn't that the objection to the Messiahship of Jesus? God's never taken on flesh before, so he can't do it now. Uh, Hold on. Uh, Calvinists especially have to go, hey, if God wants to convert the vast majority of people in the nation, he can jolly well do it whenever he jolly well wants to. I mean, that's our theology. So, uh, what would be the nature of suffering if a nation was filled with Christians? Would Christians still suffer? Yeah, of course. Not the not in the way that uh, that Lot suffered in Sodom and Gomorrah with the constant uh, evil around them. But there's still a lot of ways of suffering. Because no one's saying that just because a nation becomes filled with Christians that there's not going to be any more cancer. There's not going to be any more infant death or miscarriages. And that we will not be still called to do battle with our sin, even though there will be lots of people around us that will help us with that. Um, So the question would be suffering for what? And is external suffering, as in persecution, uh, the same thing as all the suffering that is involved in sanctification. So when, during uh, Spurgeon's day, you didn't suffer for being a Christian in London in the sense of persecution, but there was still plenty of suffering. Um, so, uh, and, that, and like I said, martial Christianity, yeah, no thank you. The nations will not will not become Christian in this age. Well, that's the eschatological issue. Some of us believe that there are promises of Scripture that say that uh, that will be a blessing from God, and that there will be it sort of helps explain Abraham's 
uh, offspring being as numerous as the sand of the sea, the stars of the sky, uh, stuff like that. Uh, There is no call to Christians today to undo the curse, except that it's been undone in us. (coughs) In the sense that we have been given new life, and that curse has been taken by our Savior. And so I'm not sure what he means here by that. I've seen some... Um, discussion um, about ordering one's life as the undoing of the curse or something. I'm not sure I get all of that. Maybe there's more of a context here that that I haven't read yet or not aware of, but it, it does seem that the light of the gospel drives away the darkness, right? And is darkness part of what the curse is? And if Men's hearts are freed to be at peace with God through the gospel. Aren't they going to be at peace with one another? Um, the, the ground doesn't cease to be cursed. The, the creation, there's still death up until the, the, the final consummation of all things. There's still death and, and that kind of thing. Um, but there is a, a hope that the gospel actually changes things. And not just in a individual sense, but collectively, if there is that outpouring of the Spirit of God. So he then later said uh, in another tweet, all the earth will become the footstool of Jesus. Um, we would say it already is. Um, Jesus will heal the cosmos. That's what he's doing to us. Jesus will dry every tear um, at the end. Yes. Uh, Jesus will rule the earth in visible majesty. Yes, but he already is in heaven. Um, Jesus will make all things right. Agreed. Jesus will end the reign of wicked kings and nations. Yes, but is that in one cataclysmic event? Or is that in um, putting his enemies under his feet in a progressive sense? Uh, Jesus will do what we can't. Well, we can't do any of this. None of this is separate from Christ. And then he says, soon. Well, I'm not sure how you know that. I mean, the, the, the question that, that I was asked that I could not answer is, why do you think we're not still nearly church? I mean, all this is going to be true. For every believer who dies and enters into the presence of Christ, all that becomes a reality Instantly, okay, fine, but I'm, I'm talking about in the historical sense. What if there's still centuries to go? What if there's still millennia to go? Nobody um, in the second century thought there was going to be a 21st century. No Christians. But there is. got to deal with that. It, it, it's real easy to just push that aside. Um, but, but we can't do that. We, we have to recognize um, that that's a valid question. And what does that mean if it's true? What if we're at the midpoint? Now, was, was that, is that at least a fair possibility? I know it was never something even considered in my youth, in the churches I was in. No, no. And that's pretty much the case with every generation. Every generation says, this is it. It, it just can't last any longer. It's all going to 
But of course, that was what was believed during World War II, World War One, uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Everyone's always had that perspective. And yet here we are. And it seems to me that the breadth and depth of gospel proclamation around the world is growing at a at pace with the breadth and depth of sin and rebellion. There continues to be growth. I mean, there are churches and places in this world that didn't exist in 1850. <clears throat> is that a good thing or a bad thing? What's well, a good thing? It's a good thing. Has Do we have the ability to wipe ourselves off the planet now? Yep, we do. But we also could have been wiped off the planet by a simple plague you know, there was a plague during Justinian's time, killed lots and lots of folks, but it could have been worse and wiped everybody out. God didn't allow that to happen either. So you got to have, you got to be willing to step back and go, there's different ways of looking at, uh, at this. And uh, there are certain non-negotiables. Um, and we can agree on those things, but um, I think it's important to be able to look at other options other options that are that are on the table as well, uh, without then lobbying the heretic heresy argument and all the rest of that kind of stuff that goes along with it. Um, that doesn't help anybody. So hopefully we'll be able to point folks to uh, this program uh, in the future when people start doing the what is your position and all the rest of that kind of stuff. The sort of best dialogues help because I'm talking with Doug at that point. Uh, here I'm interacting with other stuff. And <clears throat> we tried. It was our intention. It was purposeful on our part. Um, okay. Uh, it was purposeful on our part to seek to model Christian disagreement uh, at G3 at the pre-conference, sadly, at G3 as well, in some ways, um, that is a mark of Christian maturity. I think we have evidence that that's a good thing in the New Testament. For example, when um, the split, Paul, Silas, Paul, Barnabas, about Mark, remember? You know, nope, I'm not going with Mark. He's He went away, so he's out. And then later on, bring Mark for he's, he's uh, useful to the ministry. That seems to indicate that there can be disagreements that are healed over time, um, that there may be strong disagreements between men who are uh, spirit-filled but not perfected, including apostles, that then over time are resolved. There seems to be an indication of that in that particular instance uh, in in the New Testament. Now that's not on that was that was about a person that wasn't on theological issues. Um, but we are in a situation where I really believe that one of the greatest I think one of the reasons that we aren't willing to work with people that we there are some with a fundamentalist background 
that still hold on to the broad idea of separatism. Be separate from the world. Then that becomes applied to be separate from anybody who doesn't look like you and think like you and act like you. And that's what you see in fundamentalism. But people with that background, even once they embrace a form of reform theology and see the sovereignty of God and the centrality of grace and things like that, can still hold on to some of that and be unwilling to allow for almost any degree of difference in perspective. Um, that's why I know Baptists who won't work with Presbyterians. I know Presbyterians who won't work with Baptists. Um, that's a important issue. And I've debated it because I feel it's important. I've preached on it. I've made my position known. But I can still work across that division and that divide. There are things dividing people in the Reformed community today that aren't nearly as fundamental as baptism. Not nearly as fundamental as baptism. And I honestly see that as part of the judgment of God in our day. A sound discerning church is a blessing on any nation. This nation is deserving of no blessings. Out Is deserving, notice I use the term deserving, of nothing but God's wrath. I mean, this nation has had so much light and has spit in God's face. And I'm often thinking about how that impacts the church and why we see so much division and we see so much pettiness and so much brittleness. That's a term I've used a number of times now. Brittle we've become to where you you just shatter into a thousand pieces at the, at the least bit of pressure. Um, really can't develop that right now, but I, I really think that that balance between holding the line on the definitional issues while allowing for the differences is a blessing that isn't necessarily going to be poured out at this time. That doesn't mean that we don't stop praying for it and don't, don't uh, model it in and of ourselves. So you got to be willing to be the odd man out and um, suffer some. There's some suffering. Uh, suffer some in the process if you, uh, if you have to. So anyways, there you go. That was a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, uh, jumbo edition today. Wasn't sure where we, how long we were going to go. Um, but I have been informed, um, again, you know, uh, the rich cam sitting there, had to turn it off. The rich light, it took me a while to get the rich light off. Because I just thought it was really strange to have a light staring at, a, at, an, at an empty chair in there. Um, but the rich stuff it isn't working today because rich is doing this stuff remotely. Hopefully your package arrived. Um, and um, But somehow, I don't know how, Rich can't play the music today. Um, and I wouldn't know if he did or didn't because I can't hear it <laughs> as we started the top of the program. So uh, this is what we're going to call a hard close where I'm going to say, have yourself, oh, device conflict. We have a device conflict going on. 
this is probably something that happens with Windows. Um, that sounds like something I remember from long ago in something called Windows. Little dots are dotting again. <laughs> Two devices fighting for the same thing. You know, I knew what that was, Rich. I, I do know what the device code was. Uh, I should... The last thing I will say to you before our hard close today is I know you can't see this, but I have found... Actually, it's a program I've had, but I found a way to make it work better. I have Christmas lights on this monitor today. <laughs> because, because in the weather forecast, in the weather forecast, there are 70s. Now, they're not here. It's about 100 degrees today. But in the weather forecast, there is a hope of the coming of fall. And so I have Christmas lights um, on, my, on my monitor over here. And Rich just said, oh, brother. He's not saying, oh, brother, as in addressing me as brother. He's just saying, oh, brother. It's a different way of using the term brother. So anyways, thanks for listening to the program today. We'll see you next time. God bless.